At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Overflow, From Him, Through Us, For All, as we explore Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. Together, we'll focus our attention on the gifts of God and see that we're not meant to keep His blessings to ourselves, but to live as vessels of His abounding grace. When you think of the word ministry, what comes to your mind? What, what words might you use to describe ministry? What, what do you think are words maybe, as you just think rhetorically, what, what are some words you think might come to people's minds when they think of that word or hear of ministry? I think for most people, when they hear the word ministry, they think of something that's done by a, a pastor or maybe a, a missionary or um, some, a counselor maybe, um, I think oftentimes when we talk about ministry, that's something that's done by professional Christians, right? They do the ministry. That's what they engage with. And we use that term. We, we say things like in our church context, we say things like he's entering or she's entering the ministry, right? That it's a kind of separate thing. We use fancy words like clergy and laity, whatever that means. But it's some, right, like bifurcation between those who do ministry and the rest of us who are just kind of apart or are ministered Two, sometimes we think ministry is something that happens on a Sunday morning or it's something that happens in a church building, right? It it's, happens in a church ministry. Those are the terms that we often use. We think of it as like preaching or worship, a Bible study, counseling, fellowship. But is this what the Bible means when it uses the term ministry? Does it have that kind of divided idea between those that do ministry, the professionals, and the rest of us? I would argue that it doesn't, that when the scriptures think of the word ministry or the idea of ministry, that ministry is something that is meant to be done by all the people of the church. We actually see Paul get at this idea in Ephesians 4, where he writes one of the most impactful letters in terms of the idea and God's vision for the church. And in Ephesians 4, Paul writes this. He says, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He's talking about gifts that God gives amongst the people of the church. And here's the key, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The idea in scripture is that it's not the professionals that do ministry. We do ministry, and the work of God's gift among his people is to work to equip us to do ministry. That you and I, all of us, are called to ministry. You say, that's great, but what, what is ministry? What does that even mean, right? This is a fancy term that we often use. Well, the word ministry in the Bible just means serving or service. It comes from the Greek word diakonos, which just means service. That's what it means. And the Bible uses that term in a plethora of ways to describe the way God's people minister to one another inside their community and outside of their community. In fact, if you looked up the word that we often translate ministry, diakonos in a Greek dictionary, I actually did that, I know, I'm a nerd, but it would describe it this way. It says this in one of the key dictionaries. It says that diakonos, it's a decisive point for understanding the concept is that early Christianity learned to regard and describe as diakonia, which is are the actions of service, all significant activity for the edification of the community. 
Here's the big idea. I know, nerd out, you're like, goodness, we're talking about Greek already, like this is, I'm, you know, don't peace out on me yet, hold on. The idea I want you to hold in your mind is that when the Bible talks about ministry, it talks about serving, and that serving is done in a whole bunch of ways amongst God's people and his community. You're like, okay, great, what does that have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, Paul uses this word to describe giving in the church of Corinth. You actually see it come right away in verse 1. He says, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. Paul uses that Greek word for serving. The Corinthian church, if you remember, if you've been in this series, if you haven't, let me just give you a little background material. Paul is an apostle writing to the church in Corinth because a year before Paul writes this letter, he had been in Corinth and he was raising money for the church in Jerusalem, which was suffering from extreme poverty and famine. And Paul was going around to the churches in Asia Minor, gathering resources and money to help support the church in Jerusalem. And he had been in Corinth a year before he wrote this letter and they had said, yes, we want to give money to help support the churches. And so Paul essentially writes to them now to encourage them to fulfill the promise that they, he had made. And he wants to encourage them in their giving. But as Paul encourages them, he notes multiple times that he views giving. And for a church community, the giving of resources as a spiritual act. In chapter 8, he referred to it as an act of grace. That the giving of financial resources was an act of grace towards the communities that were suffering. Here, Paul now calls it a ministry for the saints. Now, you got a deep program from our Western idea that says saints are like those special people and pictures and buildings and churches. Saints in the New Testament are the people of God. It's the, a way to refer to the church. It means holy ones. So Paul's essentially saying, listen... This act of giving, of what you're doing and what I'm encouraging you to do, it is a ministry. It is a way to serve others. There's a plethora of them in the church. But today, I want to talk specifically about how Paul sees that giving is more than money. It's ministry. You see, I think many people, when they think about giving in the church, again, we have this idea that the professionals do the ministry and the rest of the church just funds the ministry. That really our giving is just to fund what the professional Christians are actually supposed to do. But that's not how Paul views giving and money in the New Testament. He views it as a service to people and a service to the church. And when Paul in his letters encourages giving, he gives a whole host of the ways giving actually serves the church and serves others. Let me highlight just a few so we can help reprogram our minds to see that giving isn't just funding ministry, that it is a ministry to others. One of the things that's replete throughout the New Testament is that giving meets needs. It helps meet the needs of the church. We see this from the very beginning of the church in Acts 2, where it says that they were selling their possessions and giving to all those that had needs. It's re-emphasized in Acts 4. And if you look at Paul's letters, he continually is encouraging giving as a way in which the church meets the needs of those that are struggling or suffering, that experience poverty or oppression or all sorts of things. Part of what Paul calls giving towards is that giving supports vocational ministry. That there is those who are set apart who are to make their living 
in ministry. That doesn't mean we all aren't called to ministry, but some just make their living off it. This is why Paul would encourage in 1 Timothy, he would say that a worker is worthy of his wages, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, that they're those who make their vocational life from ministry. Paul encourages giving to support gospel ministry. We see this in his first letter to the Corinthians. We see it in Philippians as the church supported Paul's ministry, that part of giving goes to serve the way God's gospel moves around the world and the way missionaries move and things spread and the gospel work that happens in the world. And then finally, what we see here is that giving also provides blessings to others, to other churches, to the church that you're a part of. So I share all this with you to help you see that Paul's mindset, giving isn't just a thing that funds ministry. Giving is a way in which we minister to one another, to the way we meet needs. We provide for gospel ministry. We bless others. That giving is ministry. And this is something he wants to encourage the church to see and encourage us today. But what Paul then wants to lean into is as we have that mindset shift, he wants us to help us see that if we see giving as ministry, it will affect the way in which we approach giving. If we move from a view that says giving funds ministry to giving is ministry itself, how would that actually then begin to affect the way that we live as people and as a church? Well, that's what Paul then wants to encourage in this passage. And he really encourages them to consider three things, and I think for us to consider three things that would shift if we began to view giving as ministry. The first thing that we see in Paul's letter if we view giving as ministry is that we'd commit to give. If we viewed giving as a ministry, we would be committed. We'd have a desire is the idea here in order to actually give of our resources to help in the work of the gospel, and to meet needs. This is why Paul begins in this section of his letter. He's been encouraging them all the way, but he kind of picks it up afresh here in chapter 9. He says, now it is superfluous. Now there's a $10 word. You're like, what on earth? Superfluous. That just means it's unnecessary. It's more than needed for him to write to them about this ministry of giving. Why is it superfluous? Why is it unnecessary, does Paul say? Well, he says, because for, in verse 2, for I know your readiness. That's the idea of eagerness or desire is the thing there. And Paul says, I actually know you're so eager that I've boasted about you to the people of Macedonia. Macedonia being the neighboring state. Achaia is the state that Corinth is in. And he essentially says, I've been bragging about you because I know your zeal. I know your eagerness. So I don't really need to write about you. What Paul's reminding them of is that the starting point of giving and seeing it as ministry comes from desire. It comes from a commitment, a shift that takes place in the heart that sets generosity as a value. And what Paul reminds us here is that if we view giving as ministry, we will be committed to it. We will see it as valuable. We will strive in our hearts to value giving and generosity. Because when we value it, it results in commitment. It results in a change in our thinking and our action. And so I think the first thing we need to remember is that when we view giving as ministry, we'll be committed to giving. We'll be committed to generosity. Do you know people in your life that are just, they're committed to generosity? Like you see that heart value and the way they live it out. You know, Paul's encouraging the Corinthians, and I'm often encouraged by people that I see in my life who live in that way. You know, when I think of someone that's committed to giving, I think of my grams. 
I just got to see my grams this past weekend. She's 90 years old, and she is one of the most giving people you will ever meet. I mean, literally, I like, I'm 36 years old, I'm leaving her house, and she's like trying to give me boxes of cereal. Like, Grams, I can afford a box of cereal. Like, I don't need it. But her heart is like so geared towards giving, she won't let you leave her house without giving you something. Like, it might be a box of raisins, but you're not going to leave unless Grams has given something. Because that's just her mentality. That's her worldview. She values it. And using her resources however she can to bless those she comes in contact with. When I think of someone that's committed to giving, I think of my wife. My wife is committed to giving. Right? She is hands down, probably the best sharer you will ever meet in your entire life. She genuinely is. And the people that know her know she is committed to giving. And my wife will give anytime, anywhere. If you go out to lunch with my wife, she's going to buy. If she sees a need, she's going to try to meet it, right? And she doesn't even think. She gives first and asks questions later, which causes a whole dilemma in our relationship because I always come along as the stingy one to be like, did you, did you really need to buy that? Like, couldn't you just split the check? That would have been fine. Like, but no, her heart is so geared towards giving that it challenges me and reminds me we're called to live with that sort of spirit. She often will remind me, Jacob, hasn't God provided enough for us? Why can't we just live open-handed? And what Paul's cherishing about the Corinthians is that they had that sort of heart. When he came to ask for a pledge, they were, they were like, yes, we want to give. Our heart is oriented and geared that way. And it forces us to ask the question, if we view giving as ministry, do we have that sort of commitment in our own lives? Are we committed in our hearts to be generous, to be givers? That's the starting point of viewing giving as ministry. But the second thing is that that giving then has to translate to action. That's the problem that Paul has with the Corinthian church. Yes, they have the desire, but they're not translating it to action. And so Paul wants to encourage them, if you view giving as ministry, not only will you be committed to give, you'll prepare to give. You'll be prepared to live generously. You actually see this continue in verse He says, but I am sending, so in response to your desire, I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So Paul knows their desire to give, but they're not following through. And so he takes an action. He's going to send some brothers ahead of time to help them prepare. Now, part of the reason Paul does this is because he doesn't want their, his boasting to be untrue. They had made this huge pledge, and Paul had then gone to the churches in Macedonia, which were much less well-off than the church in Corinth, and essentially said, hey, look what this church is going to give. Let's give generously, too. And the Macedonian church had responded in droves. You actually see that early on in chapter 8, that they gave out of their poverty, above what they had and above their means, in order to support the church in Jerusalem. But Paul essentially comes along and says, well, listen, If I then come to these brothers, were encouraged by your giving, I reported it to them, they responded, and then I come back and you haven't given? Like, how bad is that going to look? So Paul essentially says, no, I'm going to send people to help you prepare so that when this delegation from Macedonia comes with me to carry their gift to Jerusalem and we come to Corinth before heading down there, you'll be ready. You'll be prepared. You'll actually have the gift and we can carry on to deliver it then to the church in Jerusalem. The reminder Paul 
encourages the churches, you need to be prepared to give. Don't commit to what you're not willing to sacrifice. You see, when you, give, when you view giving as ministry, what you first see is you see a shift in desire. But as you see that shift in desire and value, you then translate that back into your life and you prepare your life in order to give. Otherwise, if you have a desire or a vision to give, but it's not taken in action, that actually becomes a source of embarrassment. And that's what Paul says. This is an embarrassment to you if you don't fulfill what you said that you would give. We have to be prepared. I often, when I think about being prepared for generosity and giving, I have a very tangible reminder of this in my hometown. So I'm from Akron, Ohio, originally. And Akron's known for a few things. One, it was at one time the rubber capital of the world that made all the tires for the car industry. Less now, Goodyear's still there. Uh, but it also started, started two things that you might not know started in Akron, Ohio. The first thing that started in Akron, Ohio is tele-evangelism. Actually got its start in Akron, Ohio by a man named Rex Humbard who started it in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, but the second thing that started in Akron, Ohio, is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know if there's a correlation between those two, but it seems like there just might be. So anyway, but um, uh, televangelism started in Akron, Ohio, and Rex Humbard was the leader. He started this huge television ministry, and Rex had a vision one day that he was going to build a massive tower in his complex in the town that's just north of Akron called Cauga Falls. And he was going to build a 750-foot revolving restaurant. I don't know what this has to do with ministry, but for some reason in Rex's mind, this is where they were going. And so he started to build this tower. Now, Rex did not adequately prepare for the response and giving and resources necessary to build this tower. And so about 494 feet in, the building stopped. They ran out of money. Rex eventually would sell his ministry and move to Florida. But if you go to Cauga Falls today, you will see a 490-foot cement tower that is one of the ugliest things you could ever see in your entire life. And it's a monument, literally a physical monument that I've driven by since childhood that is a reminder of what happens when you don't prepare. When you're committed, maybe you have the desire, but you don't actually adequately prepare. And it's an embarrassment to Rex. He's not alive, but it's still an embarrassment to his ministry even to this day. And what Paul's saying is, listen, Corinthian church, don't do the same thing. Don't have your eyes be bigger than what you have available Have the desire and then match that desire to preparation. Orient your life and values around giving. You know, oftentimes in the church, I meet people who desire, they desire to be generous. I don't think anybody desires to be stingy. But they desire, they want to give, I want to learn, I want to know what it means and what it looks like to live a generous life. But what I often see is that people fail in their preparation to actually live generously. Preparation to give starts in the details of our lives, not just in the desire. It shifts our values into actions. Preparation to give starts with our spending habits. It starts with our budgeting. It starts with the way that we relate to debt and live in relationship to debt. Many people do not live generous lives and don't give because they don't make room for it. They live a maxed out budget spending all their resources on themselves and never setting margins in order to use their resources to be generous. The average American holds six to $7,000 worth of credit card debt. 
Now, if you live with six to $7,000 worth of credit card debt at 20% interest, where do you think the margin's gonna be in order to be generous with others and meet the needs of others? Like, you don't even have a chance. You're behind the eight ball. And that's why we have to take stewardship seriously. We have to take our debt seriously. We have to take our margins and our budgeting seriously so we can be prepared to give. Don't buy into the American mentality, as one person I heard say it, where we buy things we don't need to impress people we don't even like with money we don't even have. You live that way, you'll never live a generous life. You'll never see the joy of giving. You'll never get the opportunity to minister, to serve another person if you live to the extreme the way our culture tells us to. So have that desire, but let that desire be met with preparation. Sit down and look at your finances. Figure out what's the best plan to pay off if you have bad debt to pay it off. Look and see where can I create margin in order to be generous. Take advantage of opportunities to be generous before the money ever hits your account. One of the things that is a blessing in our day that generations did not have before us is automatic deductions. It it saves us in generosity. Listen, I am a forgetful mess. I told you that last week, right? If it's up to me to remember stuff, I'm trying to remember bills. I'm trying to remember all that stuff. If I remember to bring giving to church or to an organization that I support, a person in need, Man, I'll mess that up all the time. Praise God that I can set in my account so as soon as the paycheck hits, I have an automatic deduction that day for the money to go to where it needs to go. Right? That's a blessing. That way I can give before I even spend it. You see, we have those opportunities, but we need to avail ourselves and prepare to be generous. But Paul doesn't just want us to move from desire to action. He also wants to remind us that part of viewing giving as ministry, it also affects our attitude, our attitude. And that's where he leaves us in his final encouragement in giving. Look at verse 5. He says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. So here he's reminding them, I'm sending these brothers to help you prepare But now he wants to challenge the attitude of preparation. He says, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, this term that Paul uses for the idea of a willing gift is the word, essentially the the root word in Greek is the word blessing. So what he's saying is so that it would be ready as a blessing, not as an exaction, which is rooted in the word greed. Paul's saying, listen, I want you to be prepared to give, to bless these people, not because you're like feeling like I'm pressuring you to do it. He wants them to have the right attitude. And that's why he goes on to say, the point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully, now what's interesting is that word bountifully is the same word that we saw, or similar word to what we saw in verse 5, it's the word blessing, So you could say, as you sow blessing, you will also reap blessing. So Paul roots the principle to say, listen, I want you to give blessing. And we know in life, if you're a farmer, I don't know if there's any farmers here, but the principle still stands. Maybe you're a gardener, right? You plant your garden, you use little seeds, you don't get much return. No, when you plant, you use an abundance of seeds to harvest a good crop. And Paul's essentially saying it's the same way in the spiritual world. When we use our financial resources to bless others, we receive blessing in return. Now, health and wealth preachers have come along and twisted this to say what you will receive in return is material blessing. 
Sow a $1,000 seed, God will fill your bank account. Hogwash. That's not what Paul's talking about here at all. What he's saying is when you use your ministry to bless others, you receive blessing from the Lord. How crappy would it be of God if the only thing he gave us in return for us sowing material blessing is material stuff? I mean, we know material stuff doesn't fill or satisfy our hearts. Talk to the richest people. They're not more satisfied because they have more money. It's often more problems. Biggie was right. Some of you got that reference. Some of you is way over your head. We'll just keep going, right? But the reality is, you know, we have to, in some way, recognize that we invest our money and that in investing our money, God gives us spiritual blessing. That's why we give. Because God has given to us already. That's why Paul would remind us in his other letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, 3, he would say, right, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We bless because we are blessed. We've received everything we need in Jesus. And so we, we give and give and give at every opportunity that we can because we know that we've received blessing, and so we seek to bless. This is why Paul gives this point. Each one must give as he decided in his heart. There's that idea of preparation again. And he says, not reluctantly, right? Not under grief or trouble or under compulsion. And here's his key. For God loves a cheerful giver. See, when you see giving as ministry, you give cheerfully. It's a joy to give. It's a joy to use what God has entrusted you to bless the lives of others. And so Paul wants us to have that mindset shift because that mindset shift leads to an attitude shift. Right? That we're called to give cheerfully. Now, Paul's, Paul's not using this as a way for you to cheap out on God. Right? Some people think like, well, I can't give a lot of money cheerfully, so I'll just give a little bit. Because that, like, I'm not going to give the best of my stuff. I'll give the leftover clothes in the back of my closet to the homeless people because that's what they really need is more dirty clothes to wear. But I can give that cheerfully, right? That I can give. That's not what Paul's saying. This isn't a way for him to cheap out on God. What he's reminding you of is you give cheerfully because God is a cheerful giver. God gives to you abundantly because he is cheerful to bless you and to give you. The call to give cheerfully is rooted in a God who gives cheerfully, right? God gave us to us freely. Remember the gospel here, friends. We didn't deserve God's blessing. If anything, we deserve God's cursing and God's rejection. We had turned our back from him and were rebellious, and yet God in his magnificent grace and love gave us his son to pay for the sins that we've committed for our rebellion, to reconcile us back into relationship with him and give us new life. God loved us so much, he gave everything in Christ to us. He's a cheerful giver, that's who he is, that's his nature. And then we live in response to a God who gives cheerfully up to us by cheerfully giving and blessing those around us. You give abundantly because God has given abundantly to you. Every spiritual blessing. Listen, you can have all the money in the world. It will never satisfy like true joy, 
true righteousness, true love, true peace, true hope. That's what our heart craves, and that's what God gives us in Jesus Christ. And then he says, hey, use what I've given you then to bless others, to help them see the truth of Christ, to help them move in that way. And when we live this way, man, God can work in incredible ways. So I wanted to close this morning my uh, talk with just a story that I heard recently that I think gives us a great example of what it looks like when we have an attitude that giving is ministry. It's not just funding ministry, it is ministry itself. And that God is providing opportunities for us to minister all over the place. So I encountered a story a few weeks ago from an organization called I Like Giving, which essentially gathers and collects stories of generosity to help encourage us in our generosity. And I saw this story and it like was one of those, it was, I just had to share it with you. So I want to just give you a moment to kind of hear a story that reminds us of the significance of how God can use our giving as ministry. So check out this video. I had an accident and my hip was broken in so many pieces. I have two rods in my hip. She's an angel among us. If you watch her in the bread company, everyone comes in to see Catherine. You know, we sell the bread, but I feel like there are some people who specifically come with prayer requests and uh, I go pray for them. One day when we were sharing, she said she was in need of a different car, that her car was needing expensive repairs. I had been saving money, but uh, I knew it wasn't enough, so I knew I would take a few years to save for it. So a couple months later, I went in and I said, Catherine, how's your car fund coming? And she said, I gave it all away. And I looked at her and, and she said, there was a widow in need and I gave her the $5,000. I struggled a lot when I gave that money. And uh, I said, I feel okay, but do you think I did the right thing? I mean, I cannot give what I don't have, so I just gave what I had. I was shocked, and so I come home and I tell Pete that we needed to help Catherine with her car fund. He looked at me and he said, no, I think we need to buy Catherine a car. And I said, okay, great. Pete called Scott and said, do you know Catherine Great Harvest? And he said, yes, he did. Pete said, well, we'd like to buy her a car. He asked Pete, do you want it used your new car? And it just hit him right in the face. Why would he ask me that? Of course I would want a used car. That's good enough. He just paused for a moment and he said, I want a new car. And he said it was silent on the phone for a few seconds. And Scott said, whoa, I want to help. And so he pitched in some so she came to the bakery and uh, she asked me, if you were to buy a car, what kind of a car would you like? I said, Debbie, I'm not really planning to buy a car. But she said, oh, just tell me. 
and she said, I'd like a SUV cruise control, and she said, I'd like a light color. And we called Scott, and he said, I think I've got the perfect car. So Pete said, can we deliver it tomorrow? So we have the bread company owner and his family, Scott and his family and our family. And Catherine sees us all coming in and she's just all excited to see everyone. And uh, I went to give them hugs and I said, what's Pete doing here? I did have the, the biggest idea. When I went out, And so we walked her over to the car. We said, Catherine, this is your new car. So, oh, I said, for me, this is for me. I said, oh, I, I knew God had many cars, but I didn't know he had a new one for me. So God had new cars <laughs> for me. We all stood there in tears as we saw the joy on Catherine's face. And we got to be a part of it. And the joy of that was unbelievable. It's so right. It was such an excitement to drive it. We told Catherine that we would like this to be confidential. But I kept running into people who would say, I heard what you did for Catherine. It wasn't even us, it was Catherine. It all started with Catherine giving of what she had to a widow to help her, and it just continues on. Generosity begets generosity. We don't give in order to receive. We give because it's the nature of Jesus Christ. He gave us his life. So we, we have the, the DNA of Jesus Christ of giving. <laughs> yeah, so this is one story I will never forget in my life. what she said we don't give to receive we give because it's the nature of Jesus Christ when you recognize how he ministered to you how can we not respond by ministering to others and I love this story because it reminds me of the potential when we view giving as ministry that this woman would let go of $5,000 to help a widow that a couple and friends would gather to minister to her in response when you sow blessing, you reap blessing. It comes in all sorts of forms and ways. It spreads amongst a community. It leads to transformation in the world. So I hope let's live with the mentality and mindset that God has given us an opportunity to serve with the resources that he's given us. Let's commit and prepare and then give cheerfully to see what he can do in our lives as well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you 
for the way you work in people's lives. Thank you for the story of Catherine and as it encourages us this morning. But thank you also, most of all, for the most incredible gift that you could give us, which is your son. Thank you, Jesus, for serving us by becoming poor, that we might inherit and receive eternal spiritual blessing. How good of you, God, to give what is necessary that our souls would be satisfied, not just for a blip, not just for a moment, but for eternity. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve others around us, to show what the gospel looks like by the way we live materially, inviting them to experience a God who loves and serves them. So I pray even now as we prepare to just respond in worship, would you remind us, even as we sing, of the incredible blessing that we have. And may it be motivation. May it encourage us to live in response and use our lives for blessing as well. Spirit, we just invite you to move now. It's in your holy and precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.